in the middle of the week ahead is the the shortest night or the longest day, depending on how you want to uh, figure it, depending on what your opinion is. But I wonder how long before we then notice that the nights are drawing in. You know? Eventually it'll get a point where we go, oh, the nights are drawing in, aren't they? You know? For me, it usually takes about a month, uh, so uh, not long after the schools break up for the summer. I realise that it's maybe starting to get a bit darker at nine o'clock in the evening. But to get there, there'll be a minute or two's change each sort of day or each couple of days, wouldn't it? How much change? does it take for us to notice something is happening? That something different is occurring? Do we actually notice it? And do others notice it in our lives? Do they notice it about us? Do they notice it about church, about God's people? Sometimes when there's change, people see it right away. And other times, if we welcome it, a considerable time passes before the difference is seen. Our, our passage today comes from a time of change in the study of Matthew's Gospel. But perhaps we don't always notice this change occurring. It's still early in his writings, his telling of the life of Jesus. It's early in Jesus' ministry. And yet, this is a time of change. Because having been with Jesus... As he journeyed from place to place, as he spoke of the kingdom, as he brought healing, as he cast out demons, it's now time that the disciples take a more active part. And we hear that in the passage as, the, as their names are given and they're declared to be apostles, people who are sent out, not only to speak of the coming kingdom, the great change that will happen, but to offer glimpses of the way that the Heavenly Father wants the world to look. They themselves will see that evil is cast out. They will bring healings to people with all manner of sickness. Jesus has been among the harassed and helpless, which in a more literal translation might give us torn apart and thrown, just as if they had been ravaged by wolves. But now he encourages his friends to go to the lost sheep 
to share in his compassion, to make a difference in the world, to bring change. But this sending out is with a caveat. He's sending them out to go and do this. But he says, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritan villages. Don't head there. Only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now this might surprise us. What does that say about who the gospel is for? He is restricting them only to the fellow Jewish folk who are to be found in places like Galilee and Judea. People that were much like them. But Jesus has already taught, he's already taught by this point, that Gentiles will come from east and west to sit at table in the kingdom of God. Jesus, with his friends, has journeyed across the Sea of Galilee to the predominantly Gentile area of Gadarenes, where he cast out demons into a herd of pigs that then ran off to their doom. He's gone to Gentile places, but he tells the apostles not to. The gospel is for all people, people of every background. But its spread has to begin somewhere. You know, the, the charity, uh, the mission organization, Compassion, when they're at spring harvest, has a huge blow-up elephant. And they always pose the question, you know, how do you eat an elephant? Please don't eat elephants, right? But how do you eat an elephant? And the answer is one slice at a time. You know, you have to begin somewhere. You do it slowly. So they do not have to go far. They do not need to travel greatly on their first excursion without him being at their side. They're to go to people like themselves, people that are not far away, people who speak the same language, who have experienced the same situations. People who feel worn by the life that they are living just as the disciples had felt worn by their lives. People who were oppressed by the Romans and felt let down by the temple authorities. The harvest field is not full of people where everything is perfect in their life. But their families, like the twelve, where things can be a bit ropey at times, and not just ropey because they're fishermen. Maybe families that are shunned, like the tax collectors. Families that feel they have to become zealots. They have to oppose in a most forceful way. The harvest field includes 
those who would even betray their best friend, like Judas will later do. And so Jesus sends the twelve out into that field. We might think that we are normal people, but no one truly is. Such a thing does not exist. No one, not even among twins, is the same in every dynamic. We all have our quirks, our habits, our understandings, our ways. We are human. And the Heavenly Father loves every single one of us. And so calls us and sends us to share hope with others that are also not perfect. He sends us into villages and towns that are maybe not 100% the same, but who we have a commonality with. Mission is us in the places that we go to. The harvest, though, is rich, and the laborers are few. And this is an important lesson for churches and us as individuals. And it can be understood two different ways. The classic use of this text is to say, what part of the mission are you playing? How are you using your time? How are you using your finances to grow the kingdom? That's it, isn't it? The harvest is rich, the laborers are few, so what are you going to do about it? Important questions. But while there are often people in churches that could do more, reviewing their giving or taking a more active part in the church, these are good things to do, things that I'd encourage. The problem is that sometimes those who hear this loudest are the individuals that are already greatly challenged, those that are already giving sacrificially those that have already given of their time in a great way. They're already trying to burn the candle at both ends, and they might wrongly hear this challenge as saying they need to do even more, when to do so is not good for their health. It leads to burnout. The Lord made the Sabbath and it is not just important, but vital. It's part of God's plan that people find the opportunity for rest and that they may have balance in life that gives glory to God, but also allows their life to flourish in other dimensions too. They need that balance of worshiping God, serving God, but also living their life in a healthy way. And this is where we must hear the laborers are few in a different way. Resources are limited. 
There is but 12. They therefore could not do everything. And Jesus says to them, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritan villages. You cannot do everything, he is saying. He's saying there has to be balance there. He says, keep it simple. Do what you're able. Jesus knows there are few, so puts a limit on what the apostles do as they go out. He expects miracles to happen. That's clear in his instruction to them. That as they preach about the coming kingdom, they will also be seeing the lepers cleansed. Even the dead raised to life. But he also knows that these people, these 12, these apostles, these people sent out, are human. 12 in time will lead on to 72. It will lead on to there being 500. It will lead on to thousands hearing the word in a day. And then it will lead on to us hearing the gospel and the message being taken to the ends of the earth. But that is not an overnight thing. At this time, they are to go to the children of Israel. The Spirit will lead them later beyond their own community and on to the Gentiles. But we can only do what we are capable of doing. And so we pray to the Lord for the harvest, asking that we can have the resources, that we may know how to have a wise stewardship of those resources, that we might reflect God's hope and God's love to the best of our ability. We can't do it more than our ability. We can only do it to the best of our ability at the time. In that prayer for the harvest, we ask that our thoughts and language be guided to where it is most effective. That we know rightly how to respond to the call that is upon us, because there is that call on each and every one of us. And that we may rise to the challenge. But also that we don't overstretch and snap. In this process, smaller churches, the leadership and members of the congregation need to be wary that they don't try to compare themselves to where they were 40 years ago or how other churches with considerably more resources do things. Instead, we pray to the Lord for the harvest not only to tell God this is our passion, that this is what we want to see happen, but to discern the corresponding direction of call for us today. 
in the passage, the call to prayer leads to a call to action. He says, pray to the Lord, and then we see the 12 sent out. When we pray, that is not simply telling God what we want to happen. It also requires our listening and our being open to where God will lead us and where he wants us to give. In this, change will occur, for that is the very purpose of Jesus. It is to offer change in our life, freedom from sin and the promise of eternity. That's a change beyond any other change we will ever experience. The purpose of mission is to grow the kingdom, to have change in the world. And the purpose of our prayers, our intercessory prayers, is to see change in lives, be it healing or spiritual awakening or other form of wholeness such as peace coming into their heart when they're disturbed. Christ's second coming on the day of judgment is to bring a new heaven and a new earth, a change that we can only imagine. But I wonder, as we see those little changes in the length of day in the coming week, whether we can also notice and be a part of a glimmer of change that heralds the coming of the kingdom. For that is why we are God's people. And that is what we are to desire. Amen.